You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. Your guide on the side. I would suggest you forge more character. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Well, we just heard some, some wonderful advice about how to rethink your thinking. And there's something inherent and I think essential uh, as all of us. The, what we're assuming then is that we have a choice on our thinking. But what the good doctor Stephen Hayes was just teaching us is you only have a choice if you if you recognize the choice. If you wait too long and allow the thought to just, you know, jump in the sled and start its way down the hill, there's a point that you're not going to turn that around. The speed's going to pick up and uh, the grooves may already be cut for the sled and you're just going to follow the last 500 paths that you've taken. If you want to create the new thought, you have to eventually recognize the stinking thinking. You got to recognize where it's uh, where you're having the thought that maybe you don't want to have. And a key point is don't don't freak out about it. Right? Don't get so caught up like I got to stop. I got to stop it. Oh my heavens! Because I think that very energy, that emotion, is what's going to drive the thought more chemical. Remember, your thoughts bring chemistry. So if I ask you to think of somebody that hurt you or offended you as a child, can you think of somebody? Can you think of somebody that made you feel less than or demeaned or somebody who hurt your feelings in high school or junior high? If you can still remember the thought and have the feelings, it's because thoughts have feelings and chemistry and recipes of chemistry associated with each thought. Those thoughts are stored. They're called scripts. And once you once you kind of inject emotion into a thinking pattern, like somebody that is sinning, doing something that they believe they shouldn't be doing or knowing they shouldn't be doing, they might start building every time they do an act, look at something they shouldn't look at. They might then create a reaction like, oh, man, God's going to be mad. I'm so bad. I'm, and they get in and they take all of that emotion and they pile it back onto the thought. And it just keeps compounding the issue, compounding it, digging it deeper, making it deeper, harder to get out of. So at some point, we don't need you to beat yourself up. I, I honestly believe if your God, if he were sitting next to you when you committed that mistake or that sin or whatever you want to call it, your God wouldn't just sit there and induce a lot of horrible feelings on you. Your God would just love you, right? And bring some peace to you. <sighs> Not that you're perfect, but that you're loved. And once you could probably feel that feeling that you're loved – then we can go and evaluate the thought. And you might start to recognize that before the thought, there was a, there was a, there was a subtle pre-thought feeling. One of the things that we've been taught a lot uh, from some of the professors here at BYU about, for example, pornography addiction, is that two of the biggest drivers of the addiction are anxiety and uh, boredom. So if you have a little anxiety on board, that may create the thought that maybe we ought to go do looking, go start looking at some porn, which then creates feelings, which then drives action. Or boredom. Hey, there's nothing going on here. Maybe I ought to go look at that thing. That, And then off we go. 
part of what we want to do is not just add on a ton of negativity and a a bunch of guilt and pain. What we might want to do is just recognize what is the pre-thought, what are the thoughts you have, and then, like our good doctor was telling us, maybe turn it into a song, maybe make it funnier, maybe do something to, you know, get rid of the emotional tension so we don't just gang up and drive these things deeper. Anyway, it's just an idea, right? But it's an idea that can make us better. Know that your thoughts are driven by your echoes of your history. And those echoes aren't going away, but they are yours. You're here on this earth to act and not just be acted upon, even by your history that was misunderstood by a five-year-old boy. It's time to act. Let's start trying. Start making fun of our thoughts a bit. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When you think about it, if everybody has some reason to be a little messed up, right? If you, we got our parents to blame. We, you know, we've got people in our world around us to blame. We have, you know, somebody in our childhood that hurt us or harmed us. So then you look at these foster care kids who really don't have any control. They, they, it's not like they can just be positive and think their way out of this. They have a hole that they're digging, and they need to get out of it, and sometimes they just need you. So seriously, go evaluate if there's some way you could get involved, um, whether time, money, energy, whatever you've got. Uh, it makes a difference. I used to do a lot of training where I would take these families and, and just help them strengthen their marriages, their relationships, to make sure that they were learning you know, good communication skills so that it wasn't destroying a marriage as they were fostering and caring for these kids. Um, one of the things that I have found is is key to parenting as I coach a lot of parents and I coach a lot of kids is uh, there's a few tricks about helping our kids believe in themselves. Um, a lot of talk is is thrown out there about self-esteem and kids need to have self-esteem and understand their own um, their own sense of who they are and and what they what they bring to this world, and, and I think that's true. Except what they also I believe need is uh, just they just need to know they're that they that they're cared for that they're worth something, and I don't know. We got to be careful as we are working with our families and our kids and our younger folks our young adults, the uh, those just graduating maybe from high school, that we need to validate their worth, not just their works, right? Like we talk a lot about what our kid did, and when he's graduating from high school, yeah, he graduated from high school. He, he was, you know, um, valedictorian, top of his class, and we talk about all of these accomplishments. But as soon as we're tying our child's worth to their accomplishments – we might be setting them up for something because uh, most kids aren't valedictorian, right? There's one of those per class. So there's 500 that aren't. And yet, if that's what we keep seeing that everyone talks about, we start getting the social mirror reflecting back on us saying, you're not quite cutting it. We want to validate people's worths. And their worth is not just their works. It's not just their touchdown or their looks or their fame or the money they make. You know what it might also be is just 
their their work ethic, their their sense of um, care for others, they um, their inherent value just simply because they're loved by a god, right? And so validate worth, not just works. Don't get caught up on outcomes only. A lot of parents are, and it it sets your children up to not necessarily value themselves. Another rule is to encourage your kids by understanding them, right? Encourage by itself means that we get within the heart of another. So do you even know what your child's goals are? I have parents come in all the time and they tell me, I don't, my kids won't listen to me. Well, they won't listen to you because you don't seem to care what's in their heart. Well, of course I do. Well, not if you're always telling them what to do. So when it comes to your kids, if you really want to encourage them, you got to listen a lot more than you're speaking. And that ex- that by letting them express, even if their expression you don't like or is it you know it frustrates you or it's not motivated enough, it doesn't matter. Let them express. Shine a light on their strengths. Identify what they are good at. Go figure out. Take these strengths assessments we talk about on the show all the time um, and go learn about what they're good at. What are their character strengths? And there's we've talked about it on the show recently with Fatima Doman and her strengths program. So if you just go look up our our um, our uh, what are they called? Our podcast. That's it. Go look up our podcast and listen to them, folks, and go figure out what your kid's strengths are. Is is he intuitive? Is he hardworking? Is he social skills? Is he spiritual? And once you know what their strengths are, help them identify daily when they're progressing. Don't just look for where they're not progressing, which is so easy to critique. Why is your room such a mess? Man, you're reading a lot since you got out of school. Why are you reading so much? Talk about what they're doing well. Because if you pinpoint the progress and you know what their strengths are, you might start helping them believe in themselves. Heaven forbid. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. People are mad. (sighs) And we've got to somehow take our country back when it comes to our, our businesses, our economy. We are so into, you know, eat, drink, and be merry. Just fatten yourself up and tomorrow will be fine. But uh, it doesn't it doesn't seem like that. It seems like we might be setting ourselves up for another fall when a tiny percentage of Americans have enough savings to cover their bills for three months when like five percent, maybe 10 percent of America could cover their three months of bills if, if they stopped working today. That's scary. If everyone else is living paycheck to paycheck. We need some tough love, and the problem is we keep looking to leaders to do it, and I think the we might be giving our leadership way too much um, – what's the word? Respect? <laughs> we might be thinking that our, our Congress people are going to solve some of this stuff, and they obviously can't, especially if the legislation is being written by the companies and the organizations that are um, – that are – benefiting. So this is our deal. This is our issue. And what I would love to have happen, we need a little tough love. Okay. So there's there's a story I found on CNN about a dad who sells his disrespectful son's SUV on Craigslist. Okay. He's just had it. 
He's fed up with his son smoking weed and acting all thug-like, a Florida dad uh, said. He, so he sold his teen's SUV on Craigslist. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. And he agreed to take $250 off the price if the buyer lived in the area just so his son would see the vehicle every now and then to remind him of how good he had it. Now, is that just a petty dad? No, no, it's not. It's a smart dad. I'd take 500 off if you could get a neighbor to buy it. And let the son see that you can't treat people like that. He wrote on Craigslist, I have my son's truck up for sale that I bought for him as his first car. He thinks it's cool to drive around with his friends smoking dope and acting all thug, especially not showing me and my wife the respect we deserve. This was a vehicle to finish school in, get a decent job and get a head start in life, but chose to throw it all away because his friends would rather have an influence on him than me. They'd rather have his friends have an influence on him more than I do. Now he can't uh, put those Jordans to use. Now now he can put the Jordans to use and walk, um, you know, they're a little swear word there, uh, walk his blank off on the way to school. The truck's nice. It has ice cold air, power, everything. It's it's dirty inside, but, you know, with somebody with a little pride and respect can clean that right up. So it's on sale. And maybe that's what we need is somebody to come in and just whip us and just take us out and say, I mean, do we need another economic collapse? Or can you do something about it? Just ask yourself, what can you do about it? If your answer is nothing, then we got to rethink, right? And keep listening. We'll find ways. One way is to stay informed. Another way is to vote. And if you're frustrated with voting on the national level, vote on the local level. Look at your Congress people. They're having a huge impact on your life. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, as parents, we often do not know how to talk to our kids about money. It can be a tough topic to handle because we know that they need to understand budgeting. And they also ask the craziest questions like, Dad, so are we rich? How much How much money do you make? How much is your company worth, Dad? All these crazy questions. And then you get a little nervous. Like, am I supposed to? I don't want my kids to think we have money because... Then they're going to want to spend it all, and they're going to talk about it with their friends. Joining us to talk about uh, how to talk to your kids about money is John Christiansen, founder and CEO of Highland, a boutique wealth advisory firm. He's here this morning to help us with all the things parents need to know and learn and teach their kids about money. He wrote a wonderful article that was in Harvard Business Review, How to Talk to Your Kids About Money When You Have a Lot of It. So we're excited to have you on here. John Christiansen, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thanks, Matt. Uh, it's really a pleasure. This is such an, I, I think, an important topic. It, it's it, and it starts just with a subtle question. It seems like sometimes kids are curious about our money, but in the end, it, it seems like as parents, we're way, we're very, very afraid to, to talk about it. Why is that? Well, I think uh, one of the biggest concerns that parents have is is in general just launching their kids well. And when you start bringing in the influences of money into that conversation, 
lots of things come up that have to do with maybe our own money history, mm. um, how money influenced our lives. And we start to look at maybe our kids through those lenses. And we get concerned because we've seen lots of uh, scenarios or heard of scenarios where money has done things to, to uh, negatively influence uh, kids, be it, whether it be entitled or materialistic or, or even in some cases worse as parents will, would impact uh, our kids' motivation or drive. Mm, so true. And, and I, I mean, I, that's a great point that the way we were raised, how we were kind of brought up around money, we, we, we may have come from a generation where, you know, money's one of the things you don't talk about. It's money, sex, religion, you know, you don't bring these issues up. But it also seems like we have kids that are much more open today than we ever were. Oh, there's no no doubt. And, and to your point, there, it is one of those taboo conversations at some level. And I think you're right that when it comes up, we freeze up. And I, I think there is an opportunity there to, and what the article was, was trying to get at was there's an opportunity to communicate with our kids uh, in, of course, age-appropriate ways mm-hmm. uh, that allow us to shape that conversation and be proactive in that conversation instead of being reactive, which in the article I mentioned, you know, my own daughter. You know, yeah. I'm not immune as a father myself, right? So I, I you know, I, I freeze up, and, and I'm in this business, for heaven's sake. So, you know, it's hard. These are hard, hard conversations, and it requires a level of, really being authentic and real to, to who you are and, and who you want to be. And it kind of starts there. Hmm. And in the, in the article, you, you talk about people, you know, how to talk about money with your kids if, if you have a lot of money. But even if you just have a moderate amount of, of income and revenue, these are conversations that will affect the rest of their lives, right? The, how they see money. Uh, I totally agree. It's interesting. One of the questions I ask uh, the clients that I work with uh, early on in our relationship is, what is your money history? What is the what is the message money was either taught to you or what lessons did you learn about money? Of course, from our parents, from our upbringing. It's a fascinating conversation. And it really, in most cases, <clears throat> in our case in particular, a lot of people we work with weren't uh, born into money. They're, they are what we call first-generation uh, wealth beneficiaries. They, they, this is new. They've created, a, 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 in a lot of cases, significant amounts of wealth, uh, but they didn't learn how to do this, and mm. their parents didn't teach them how. So it's fascinating that looking back on what, what did mom and dad share with you about money that influenced how you're going to think about it now? You brought up a really interesting statistic from Wall Street Journal's article by Missy Sullivan in 2012 about more than half of high net worth boomer parents had not fully disclosed their wealth to their offspring, while another 13% had com- uh, had kept completely mum. We, I mean, a, a big percentage of high wealth uh, people don't ever apparently they're not they're not sharing any of the details. How do we know what details we should share and and what we shouldn't? Well, one of the things I think is an is an easy place to start is just start to share what are your values. Um, what what kind of values do you have around money? 
Um, and and not not the negative ones, of course. Yeah. But what are the positive ones you want to you want to share with your kids and and um, and, and the beliefs you have about money? Um, and I, I think that can be everything from talking about budgets. Uh, it can be talking about saving. It can be talking about generosity and, and volunteering. It could it could be talking about debt. Um, uh, and I even mentioned the idea of, of small business or entrepreneurialism. So, I mean, there's lots of ways to say, here's what I or we as parents um, believe is important and what we want to start um, sharing with you as, as kids, depending on where you are in that development stage. Yeah, I think that's it's so important. I mean, you can't go wrong with the values, I, mean, I guess, unless your values are totally backwards. But the values discussion <laughs> is the beginning, right? It's how it's going to be the it's going to be the baseline of how we make all of our decisions. Yeah, I think, and what we're where I think we struggle as parents uh, is, and from my own experience is that it takes a, a certain amount of introspection to get clear on what those things are. Mm. Um, and, and I think that's, uh, that's where it starts. And, and then I think the second part of that that's real important is to set really clear expectations about as you're communicating this, whatever you want to communicate around your values, what is the support, what is the expectation that um, your kids can expect? Uh, and and I think that can be everything from allowances to cars to college and kind of where is that financial safety net? If you can start to define the playing field, so to speak, okay, now I know where the boundaries are if I'm, if I'm a child. I know where the boundaries are and I know what I'm responsible for. And so now I've got both my parents' values and the playing field defined for me at some level. Mm. And I know now maybe a little bit better what I'm responsible for. Yeah. And you you said earlier, like age appropriate. I mean, my kids just the other day, um, one of them hadn't practiced his guitar and were sending him to expensive lessons and a financial discussion came up. Like, we're paying money for you to do this. Are you going to take it seriously? I mean, it seemed like the perfect time to have a discussion of not just about, you know, guitar, but about money. This is costing money. You know, do you want to do would you keep doing guitar if we weren't paying for it, if you had to pay for it? I mean, I guess the discussion can come when they're opening up the discussion. Well, exactly. I think there's plenty of opportunities to discuss the the concepts that that both time and and money aren't are not limitless resources. Mm. And and I think that what I've seen is clients taking, for example, using opportunities either in those conversations or even taking uh, uh, their kids on experiences that reinforce. Uh, the value that they're trying to uh, transfer to their kids. So uh, one of my clients uh, really wanted to teach this concept a little bit around uh, how they, they had wanted to transfer wealth and how they wanted their kids to view that and actually took a trip with their kids in coach, went and stayed in Airbnbs and, and had an amazing experience. But part of the experience was, to, to share this value of great world experiences 
in a way that wasn't four star hotels. That was really important to her. Mm. And, and so I thought that was interesting, uh, that she was actively looking for opportunities to pass on and to share what she thought was important about life and money to her child. What a great example. I mean, cause we've all walked through a first class section thinking, wow, how would it be? to just sit there with your family and go on these great trips. But um, I guess part of that is she was modeling her own values, right? That she wanted to make sure, even though her children had the right, had the stuff, had the gifts, the blessings, that they they didn't just take them for granted. Yeah, I mean, I... I... Absolutely. Now, I'm not sure I'd want to couch surf with with my my oldest, but <laughs> right. you know, the, you know, to each his own there a little yeah. bit. But I think the, the you know the message is is the important thing. That's beautiful. Is it, what what do you foresee as somebody um, that that deals with the the finances and retirements of so many people? What what's the downside to not having these conversations? What if we don't? have the talks about money with our kids? Well, I think what, what you end up uh, with is, and I think the studies will show, is that the, uh, and have shown, is that, and even in my own experience in working with uh, the children uh, who've come out with uh, maybe the lack of clarity in some of these areas, is the, the idea that you, you leave them ill-prepared. Mm. And and so what happens is that money becomes an incredible magnifier. So whatever was there before the money showed up uh, doesn't get better just because because money shows up and somehow it makes everything all better and go away. To the contrary, money actually amplifies the values and the behavior patterns that were there in most cases before the money got there. And so if you, if you really aren't clear about some of these areas around values, around wealth, uh, if you don't know how to budget and save, uh, if you don't know how to use uh, and steward uh, money in a way that's beneficial for yourself and for society, uh, it, it becomes much, much more difficult to learn those things. Uh, on your own, uh, there's, it, it, you're just at a disadvantage, and in some cases it can be detrimental to your launching into society successfully. Yeah, it's, um, I love the term magnifier. It takes every other little idiosyncrasy, every other little issue you have, and just, I guess, makes it worse or makes it better, depending on what, you, what you're working with. Yeah, it does. And I don't think people, I think a lot of times people tend to think, oh, if I just had a gob of money somehow, yeah. you know, my problems will go away. Um, and in my experience, that's just not true. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, you, you, it, see, it, you see it, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just not true. Yeah. I, I, I actually uh, did a, a fair bit of research uh, recently by interviewing uh, quite a number of, of high net worth first-generation high-net-worth individuals about their life and their money and the influences of it uh, on a number of things. And it was very clear to me that it just does not – it provides some level of freedom and choice, but it just does not take away some of the basic things like worry. And, and they, they worry just like everybody else. Yeah, uh, They're afraid of what's going to happen to their kids just like everybody else. Uh, and in some cases, it actually makes it worse. Mm. 
It's interesting. I mean, it's it's so good to hear that, John. Let's take a break. We're speaking with John Christiansen um, from Highland, uh, which is a uh, it's a it's a money, I guess, management company, an organization that helps you in your retirement, helps you to understand and, and helps you secure your assets, manage your money. It's a wealth advisory firm is what they're calling it. And uh, great resource. John Christiansen joins us talking to us about how to talk with your kids about money, especially if you have a lot of it or just some of it even, just instilling, instilling the, uh, the basic, just the basic values about money. Handing down something more than money, something money can't buy, your value system. Stick with us. We'll continue the discussion after the break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. So true. The best things in life are free. But what do you do if you've got money? How do you teach your kids to not be raised and and become spoiled and uh, assuming that they should have anything they want? Well, joining us on the phone is John Christiansen. He is... um, the CEO of uh, the organization called Highland. It's uh, you can find it at HighlandPrivate.com. It is basically it's it it's designed to help people um, manage their money, and it's a wealth advisory firm. But it's a wealth advisory firm. It seems like John with with more than just a bunch of accountants and number kind of crunchers. It's it's also about creating um, a better life and and having a better life. It absolutely. It's got to be about more than just the money. And the reality of it is is that the money influences really a lot of, if not all aspects of our life. And so it's the interplay of somebody's life and their money towards something that I like to refer to as flourishing. But it's really that that concept that am I leading a life fully lived? Am, am am, Am I got a sense of of not only purpose, but the outcome are the kinds of outcomes that bring me true joy, abundance in my life. Uh, it's, it's, it's about more than just uh, how your money's invested. Those things work very closely together. Mm. You bring up in your article um, in the Harvard Business Review, again, the article's called, titled How to Talk Money with Your Kids When You Have a Lot of It. You, you talk about the importance of transparency about wealth. Talk to us. What do you mean by transparency about wealth? Well, I think it's it's really about how much you're going to share with your kids is is really what transparency is about. It's vulnerability, as Brandy Brown and others talk about. Um, if you read any on that subject, yeah. but it, it, it it's really about bringing uh, some level of vulnerability, authenticity uh, to your kids about life and and about. Uh, it can be anything uh, similar to just your own career. Um, how has work played into your life? Uh, what has worked well? What hasn't worked well? How, how it, so those are the kinds of things that I think as kids we all look at our parents and kind of wondered in some cases, 
you know, we have maybe a grandiose idea of what our parents are able to be and do Superman kind of stuff. And the reality of it is now as parents, we realize that's just not true. Uh, but there's, there's a disconnect there in communication. And if we are transparent with our kids at a level that's appropriate for them, especially as it relates to money, that there are challenges. There, there are things that are, are good and there are things that are difficult. It seems like um, it's a great – that transparency is a great opportunity because there, there seems to be an exchange between many times money and like family time. And or and so sometimes you you may be sitting there with wealthy parents who also really struggled being there for you. And so it's almost like there might be weird feelings about the money and about what our values are and what we care about, which is why being transparent about how we got there and how fragile this is and life is and mistakes we may have made. It, it's a perfect opportunity to bring it up. Well, and I think it it is, but I think it also requires us sometimes to to admit or share with our kids that, you know, we made mistakes. Yeah. And yeah. and maybe, you know, in hindsight, we would have done things differently. Um, and so uh, kind of back to what we were talking about in that money history a while back, it was, you know, that's the reason why a lot of the money history conversations aren't positive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, there's plenty of negatives passed on, whether it's workaholism or whatever that uh, people take. And sometimes that's good. I've learned that I've got to work hard. I have a work ethic. Um, that's the positive. The negative might be, as you've laid out, you know, dad or mom was never around. Yeah. And, so, you know, I've got to deal with both of those. And and that vulnerable feeling, I mean, because a lot of it about money, too, seems to be fear-based where we're you know, I, I, I didn't want to be like my parents and, and have the failure of not getting you the best. So I I had to ignore you to go make the money. I mean, it's it's a I think it's like vulnerable, like you're saying. It's such a vulnerable conversation. But, man, it could be very healing and, and really set your next generation up. Why do you think it is that second generation businesses don't succeed as well? Um, I think I read the statistics, 70 percent of them of the businesses or the, or the, the empires are kind of disintegrating in the second generation, 90% by the third generation. Why doesn't it, why doesn't it trickle down? Well, it, it, it's just one of those things where you, you said early on, you know, whether you have money or not, what can you learn about this? And I think you can learn a lot by watching people who have significant wealth. And so what that statistic says to people simply is, that if you've got a whole bunch of wealth, there's a high, high probability, uh, and the studies prove this, that after the third generation, most of that wealth is gone. Mm. So the why question is, why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is that you haven't communicated and prepared the next generation very well. Uh, and the second reason is, is that each, uh, the, each uh, new generation comes in or each individual within that generation comes in with its own thoughts and ideas <clears throat> about what to do. And in a lot of cases that's around spending and it's not around regenerating the wealth. Hmm. And so you leave the next generation kind of in a dependent state instead of where the first generation was, which was about building. And so then the base of people consuming 
from that original wealth generating event continues to increase and it just cannot support it. So there's a, there's a number of kind of logical dynamics, but it all starts with the idea that uh, you've got to find a way to instill meaningful work into the lives of your kids, not only just for support, I, I need to support myself, I need to be able to financially take care of myself, but, but it also brings a level of, of uh, uh, life purpose and, yeah. and passion that is so critical to, to life fully lived. And meaningful work, I guess that's, that's part of it. Do you, do you see with your clients, I mean, and, and what counsel do you give about uh, chores for the kids and job charts? I mean, it's so – my kids go out and mow the lawn every day, and I could imagine if I had a lot of money, it would be so much easier – on me and my wife and everybody to just hire someone to do it. What, uh, what advice do you give and, and how do you sense that you can help your kids, A, learn to work, but B, find it meaningful and find the meaning, a good yeah. meaning and passion in work? Yeah, and I don't, I mean, I, I did lawns and all that. And I'm not sure I ever looked back and went, hey, Dad, thanks. You <laughs> yeah, know, thanks, Mom. Dad. I, 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 that was amazing. Thanks a lot. That was re- Amazing. It, it, but the value that I think you're trying to get across is this idea of kind of it's character building. It creates a sense of of I can take care of myself. I can create uh, resources for myself that can be used in a number of ways, one to take care of myself, another to take care of others potentially. So I've, I've got the ability to start to learn some of these things that aren't always about passion and purpose where passion and purpose and and gifting come into play is starting to align who you are uniquely, who your children are uniquely to uh, work that fits that and brings meaning and purpose. And some of that can start by, by both asking them questions. One of the things I mentioned in the article is part of that authentic conversation is just asking kids, you know, what does bring, happiness and joy to you. Uh, you know, we observe our, our kids as parents, and a lot of times we have ideas for that. But, but what if we spent more time asking them questions about what do you think the values are to our family? What are the values you're watching me? As, as we all know, kids do what we do, not what we say. So what, what values about money and life and work are you getting from me? And I have a chance now to talk to you about some of those things. But, mm. but I see clients uh, strongly uh, moving their kids into working behaviors, whether it's chores at a younger age or summer jobs as they start getting into middle and high school years, uh, to, to reinforce the concept of motivation. The last thing they want is their kids in a place of financial dependence and not able to kind of have the uh, the, the hutzpah to kind of go and, and, and build and do and support themselves the way they did. Mm-hmm. And, and they're concerned about how do you transfer that to them because their life is so much easier and simpler than mine is. Yeah. And, and so that's where the concern starts. I really enjoyed, um, just as we wrap this up, the, the stewardship mindset that you teach. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe just talk about that a little bit. Be, this 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 really this responsibility the stewardship that money brings us to give back um how how what is that mindset how do you teach that i think it's it's what i love is the concept of a generosity muscle 
And it, it, it really is something that even as parents, we have to learn to, to use, we have to build it, we have to exercise it. Um, and uh, when you have significant wealth, what you kind of what we said earlier, if that doesn't bring happiness and joy in and of itself, giving does in a lot of cases. Generosity can bring some of those things, and it's proven um, that people that are generous, you know, have you ever met an unhappy, generous person? I mean, it's just really hard to find. Yeah. And so it's teaching your kids how to do that in age-appropriate ways um, as you're raising them. That's good stuff. John Christiansen, Thank you so much, and thank you for the great uh, insights. Everybody, go look at the website, highlandprivate.com. He's got a wonderful blog on there with article after article from his team about how to uh, to just live that life he's talking about, that meaningful life fully lived, and uh, how to hand that down as a value to your children. Powerful, powerful stuff. We will take a break, come back. When we come back, we'll be talking about the impact that uh, we have in the United States, how others in the world think about us. A little tangent from Leanna Tan. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, we, uh, we're a great country. The problem is uh, other countries may not always have that exact same view of us. So our own Leanna Tan has put together a little piece uh, to talk about what other countries think of us, especially Germany. If you've ever been to another country, you know that usually people can pick out an American from a mile away. Excuse me, Americans! (gasps) How did you know? No matter how hard you try to blend in with the crowd, somehow people always know. America is the third largest country geographically in the world, and everyone seems to know about us. But I started to wonder, are we as aware of other countries as they are of us? And do people outside of the U.S. have the right ideas about Americans? People might get the wrong idea about you. What do people outside of the U.S. really think about us? I decided to find the answers and brought in my friend Sabrina straight out of Germany. Hello everyone, I'm from Germany. My name is Sabrina Zink. <laughs> I love America. I just want to know, what was your first impression of America? Uh, everything's super big. The roads, the cars, the drinks are huge. You're all going to wonder how you ever thought you could live so large and leave so little for the rest of us. Everything is just like in the movies. All that team spirit and everyone's so excited and, and your little mascot. We're Team USA, gathered from all across America. And we're going to stick together. So what are some things that surprised you about America or the culture here? That you don't separate waste, because in Germany we separate pretty much everything. Garbage, which had been stacked for centuries with no plan whatsoever, leading to the great garbage avalanche of 2005. Not only with the trash, but also with like driving with the car just anywhere, even though it's just like five minutes away. I can't believe I have to drive all the way to work on a Saturday. What is your impression of an American accent? It's really lazy and really like wah, 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 like that. That's what it sounds like to me. Because <laughs> you you know you just speak like really in the back of your throat. You know, okay, how do I speak 
with the front of my throat. Hello. Hello. I feel like I open my mouth wider. Uh-huh. Young fella, if you're looking for trouble, I'll accommodate you. Where do you speak from in German? I use my whole mouth, you know. Oh, I will practice using my entire mouth. I think that there are a lot of misconceptions that people outside of America have about America. So what do your friends think about Americans? That Americans eat a ton of meat. Americans are fat. They only eat fast food. They're also really into sport. I think we sometimes think that Americans don't really care about the rest of the world and don't really know anything about the rest of the world. Do you think that America should be bombing Saskatchewan? Absolutely. Absolutely? Yeah. That's what they're going to have to do. That's what they're going to have to do. The world is mine. Well, I know a little bit about Germany, so I just have a few questions I want to ask you to test my preconceived notions of Germany. While you're in America, have you been to the hot dog restaurant Wiener Schnitzel? Why is it a hot dog restaurant that's called Wiener Schnitzel? But hot dog is not a Wiener Schnitzel. I'm confused. Okay. What's a Wiener Schnitzel? A Wiener Schnitzel. It's like a piece of turkey wrapped up in this mixture of eggs and breadcrumbs and then it's fried. Really? Look what they serve. Hot dogs, burgers, sandwiches fries, ice cream, and their mascot is a little hot dog. That is the weirdest thing. <laughs> Definitely not a hot dog and not a burger. I've been lied to my entire life. This is where Germany and America unite. You and I in a little toy shop Buy a bag of balloons with the money we've got Are there a lot of Volkswagen Beetles in Germany? We have a lot of Volkswagen and their Beetles, yeah. Have you ever played the slug bug game? Slug bug? It's part of the game. Anytime you see a bug go by, you yell, slug bug, and punch someone in the arm. Slug bug! Ow! Never heard of that before. Well, I have just introduced you to a very important piece of American culture. What is your opinion on Arnold Schwarzenegger? Schwarzenegger. I think his English super weird. I treasure the liberty and opportunity that I found in this country. And he's German too. <laughs> is he a good representation of Germans? No. He's not, a, he's not even German. Is he, is he Austrian? I think so. Austria! <laughs> well then, <laughs> good day, mate. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Uh, you're right. We are very naive when it comes to knowing about other countries. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Well, okay, one thing, but I get the feeling when Americans think about Germany, it's like this fat kid with like, you know what a lederhose is? Oh, lunch lady, please do have another sloppy jimbo. That's a good right? And they and they drink beer and eat pretzels and and weisswurst. And that is like not the German, you know, thing. People usually don't wear lederhose and so just to make that clear, we wear normal clothes and we don't drink beer all the time. Wow. Thank you. I feel enlightened. Well, I think we've bridged the gap between here and Germany. Just like there's more to Americans than fast food and football, and there's more to Germans than classy cars and breaded turkey dishes, there's a lot more to the people and world around you than you may think. So maybe it's time to work on understanding the world around us a bit more and realize that people are more complex than the labels we may stick on them. I'm going to go work on speaking with my entire mouth and find myself a real wiener schnitzel. I'm Leanna Tam, and that's my little tangent.
You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. Your guide on the side. If we're not wholeheartedly in our relationship, then we probably are always looking for exit strategies. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. It's such an interesting phenomenon, what's going on with all of these you know, people becoming less and less religious, and yet having such a need, such a need. Uh, for connection, right? And for even connection to a higher power or a higher purpose, connection to nature. I mean, I, I really truly believe that's what you see with all of these movements of, um, you know, animal rights and veganism and um, just every type of appreciation of life and of nature. It's it, There's a deeper belief, I think, in all of us. Now, I personally... Uh, believe in a God and use that as an organizing kind of principle of my life. And I found that, you know, some don't. And yet I I can still accept your ideas and accept what you're saying and still find space to allow you into my views. We don't always have to build walls to push everyone out. There is incredible value in being a member of a congregation, if especially if the congregation is if it's steeped and deeply believing in principles of acceptance and love and service, which if you think about it, most religion or religious organizations should be leading with their love, right? Not leading with ways to to you know get you out of their community. We should be finding ways to get you into the community at whatever level you want to be at for now. Um, it's it's really interesting how we work as human beings to find ways to exclude you. I, I'm reminded of some research I did uh, in my graduate studies by a, a guy named um, Patrick Demare, and um, he he basically did some research on in World War II. All of these soldiers were were having these traumatic World War II kind of war events where they'd see carnage and death. And mayhem, and these 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 men needed help. They needed therapy, but there weren't enough therapists to just sit down one by one and start talking to these gentlemen. So they'd start putting them in groups, and these groups would would talk, and and they'd every night they'd sit together and be able to process and create a sense of fellowship, a sense of brotherhood in what was going on, and it was the group that ended up becoming healing. And there was a word that they kept using from the Greeks that is the word, the word is called koinonia, and literally translated, it simply means communion, joint participation, the share which one has in anything, participation, a gift jointly contributed, a collection, a contribution. Many times what ends up being so healing in religious settings, I believe, is A, the religious doctrine can be, your belief in a God and a higher power that's loving and is there for you. That can give strength. Also, what is healing is just the fact that you are part of a communion. You're part of a group that all can share your existence and your power with each other. And so, again, whatever your beliefs you can still allow space to let people into your lives to create more communion. 
if your neighbors don't want to believe what you believe, you can still let them in. I had a a, a friend, a client, who um, had a neighbor across the street that had a dream about this friend's husband and brought over seven rose bushes to plant because she thought that the man was special. And it was it was a it was a religious offering from a completely different religious perspective. And the guy just rejected it. Like, I'm not I'm not gonna plant rose bushes because this lady says I it's a religious thing for her. <sighs> Bigger circles. We need to let more people into our lives and be confident in what we believe. And when we're confident in what we believe, then we can create some communion. I don't need to convince you of what I believe. I can make space for you. You know. I think that's what God would do. He'd just let you into the circle. And then, love you. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we're talking about tips for raising your your kids in an online world, especially how to raise kind kids, healthy kids. Um, we've already kind of talked about, be careful that you're not shaming them. Have a big discussion. Open the discussion up with your kids. Let your kids teach you, because your kids know more about technology than you do. And so if you put them in the role of being the teacher, they'll usually open up a lot more for you. Let them help you with your tech issues. It's the greatest thing when your child gets to actually teach dad. And by having kind of that inverted power relationship where your child's the knower and you get to be the learner, you learn a lot about your kids. You learn a lot about how they think. You learn a lot about their esteem. So that's powerful. Some other tools that I would I would just I'd highly suggest because they're things that to me seem to go to the wayside when we get into the online world. Make sure for your children you're modeling excellent social skills. Because technology, I have a feeling, is going to impair some of our social skills. Right? Like we have people breaking up with people via text. That used to be a conversation we'd always have face-to-face. We have people that um, are asking someone out on a date simply by filling out a form or typing something in on their website. Now, there's nothing wrong with online dating, but there's going to be a day that you're going to have to face the person you're dating. (laughs) And if you don't have the social skills... You're in trouble. So as a family and as a couple, make sure you spend time teaching your children social skills. Teach them how to make new friends. Teach them how to start a conversation with somebody. Give them some starters. Hey, that's a nice dress. Where did you get it? What are you studying? Just ask. Teach them some skills about how to start a conversation. Teach them skills about how to end a conversation. Have you ever been talking to somebody that couldn't end the conversation? And you almost just want to walk away. Yeah, I'm done. I'm out of here. This isn't working for me. Focus on social skills. And that might even be something in a weekly basis, maybe at your dinner table with your kids. Teach them a new social skill. Make sure that you're also giving your children an opportunity to order their own food at the restaurant, that they're going up at restaurants, and they're if they have to go back and, and get something or talk to the adult, let your kids talk to the adult. Teach them how to solve a problem by talking. Now, it's hard when they're younger, but when they're a little older, coach them through it. Model it. Model it. 
model it. The more you model excellent social skills, I think the more hope your kids are going to have in the world. In the end, it's going to come down to relationships. It's not just going to come down to technology. Think of your Facebook friends. How many of those do you even interact with face-to-face? You could also um, model while you're at it your values and your beliefs. Have discussions with your family about what are the family values. What do we believe in as a family? When you see a problem online and you caught one of your children having looked at pornography, bring up our values. Talk about your beliefs. Talk about why that's harmful. Talk about how it objectifies women, how it changes how we see each other. And have those conversations. Start letting your children understand that the decisions you're making about disciplining them are based on a family value of we believe that we should have respect of each other. And that wasn't respectful what you did. We believe that you should keep your promises. And coming home a half hour late, you didn't keep your promise. Tie your discipline back to your family values and your beliefs. Why that's important is because then as your child is interacting uh, with this crazy online technology that's ever-changing, they will always have a core set of values and beliefs that they can go from. No matter what happens online, son, be respectful. No matter what happens online, serve or love or care or lift people. Right? No matter what happens online, be safe. Don't invite someone into your life that you don't know. So model your model excellent social skills and model your values and your beliefs. Also model connection and sensitivity. One of the things I think that happens with online experiences is um, we're we're in a weird state with these people. Uh, the research shows that you are much more likely to say something online than you are um, to say it to someone's face. You're more willing to say something in a chat room or like on a message board underneath an article that you didn't like. You're much more likely to be rude and angry and hurtful than you are if that person was in the room with you. There's just something about kind of the anonymity of being online that that's a problem. And the best way to fix it or fight it is connect. Teach your children that when they're talking to somebody via text, there's a human back there. Right? The interface is just the text, but there's a human being that – and you need to be sensitive to what you say. Think about how they would interpret what you're doing. Talk about it. When they've, when they've received a text message that was hurtful, bring it up. In our family once, I had my son that would take pictures of one of my other sons that were embarrassing. They were like when he's sleeping. And then he would he would take him with his phone, with the son that was sleeping's phone, and then he would send it out to all of his friends. And he just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Great. Now, if you live long enough and you have kids, you're going to have these issues with technology. So then we sat everybody down and we had a big talk. What does that feel like? So if your brother did it to you, how would you feel? I wouldn't care. 
Well, whether you care or not, what do you think he feels? He's your younger brother, and you just sent a picture of him looking pretty goofy out to everybody he knows? That's hard. Have the conversations. Model connections. Show them what a healthy connection looks like. But you can't show them what a healthy connection looks like if you don't know how to connect. So that's why you're going to eventually need to turn off some tech once in a while and have some connection. And then another rule for you is just model the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. You've got at some point, I think if if technology is going to continue as it is, which it will, it'll just continue doubling. At some point, um, we are becoming a, a population, I think, that is so addicted to instant gratification that I think we're in trouble. So we have to somehow slow the flow of instant gratification. And I would probably have a big discussion about it and challenge everybody in the family. What do you love the most? Teach them. You know, how many times have you just been going home and one of the kids says, hey, can we go to McDonald's or whatever? And you don't, you just, yeah, sure. You know what? Go home. Make a meal. That's one of the great things about making your own meal is it actually takes time. And the time with hungry kids is a good lesson to learn. But nowadays, we can just shove a nugget in their mouth and say, there you go, pal. We're robbing the principles of the harvest, the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. If you don't have the discipline to feel the desire to look at your phone and not look at it, you're in trouble. Because that means you won't have the discipline when your kid is mouthing off at you in 20 or 30 years, you won't have the discipline to not go off on him. We have to start teaching our children about some of these uh, natural laws of like instant gratification and delaying gratification. So technology is great. Don't get me wrong. I love it. It's here to stay. And I think it's incredibly beneficial to our lives if we lead it. But if we're not leading it, then we are just being acted upon and it's going to create bigger problems for us. So lead it for heaven's sakes. Let's just lead it. Anyway, there's a little tech advice for you from Coach Matt. Now, you all, you knew this. You knew it already. The hard part is uh, it's living it. That's where it gets a lot more difficult. So we're going to take a break. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You know, America was founded on the principles of industry and the self-made man or woman. It's the American dream, right, to become successful in whatever field you want to. But this requires a lot of hard work. And maybe Americans are biting off more than they can chew. Associate attending physician at the Yale New Haven Hospital, Dr. Frank John Ninavaji, says that many people are dissatisfied with their place in the workforce, causing them to feel exhausted, inefficient, helpless. Dr. Ninavaji joins us again uh, today. He's been on the show many times um, to discuss his article, Burnout, the Indelicate Reality of Job Exhaustion. 
burnout syndrome. Dr. Ninavaji, welcome back to the show. Well, greetings from Yale, and thank you for re- uh, asking me to return. We love having you on the show because, I mean, you, you're our resident psychiatrist. <laughs> thank you. We need it. We need it. This burnout is a big deal. I see it a lot in my work. I see it a lot in my life. It's, we're burning the candle at all ends, right? It applies to all of us. I think it's part of uh, culture. Um, especially uh, Western culture and especially American culture, and any big city is just replete with this phenomenon. If you remember on that uh, article, that piece I wrote for Psychology Today on burnout, the actual statistic, believe it or not, is in general, um, the Mayo Clinic states that uh, over, I guess, the last possibly 10 years, their measurements show that 36% of the general population experiences what, what is called self-identified burnout. And then this is just astonishing. Medical doctors, 61% uh. of medical doctors say they feel burnt out. 61%? It's 61.3%. Holy cow. And then Holy you go in cow is right. And you're going to your doctor and your doctor is probably burnt out. I hear it I would say from every doctor I see as a patient. And I see not only medical students but interns, residents yeah. and fellows who specialize in specialty training before they go into, for instance, anesthesia or psychiatry or general surgery. And then I see doctors themselves, people who practice in my community, to a man, to a woman, they all say they feel burnt out. Mm. Now, they say it directly or they use those common expressions we hear all the time. Oh, it's nuts around here. Oh, it's been a crazy day. As a matter of fact, yesterday I heard another phrase, which I didn't include in my article. I have so much on my plate, I don't know when I'm going to get to that. Mm. So it's important. Oh, how exhausting. And, I mean, especially in the medical profession, that's kind of wired in them, right? They they always work long hours just in residency and in training, I guess with the goal that eventually you can maybe sit back and, and ride the wave, except some of these fields. I have a brother-in-law that's an interventional neuroradiologist, and he never gets a break. That's exactly right. And he sits there and looks at screens all day and <laughs> does interventions all day. So it's... I mean, I, I, and, and that's just one field. But what about like the guy that is, you know, a la- owns a landscaping company and is trying to put more money in his pocket, so he's hiring fewer people and he's running himself ragged? Or the mo- or the mom that's trying to, you know, have a full time job and be the the total mom she wants to be. Well, I used an analogy which really dated me a, a, a month or so ago at the school I work at. And I'm going to mention the name of the school, yeah. give it a little plug. Devereaux Glen Home, it's a private uh, residential boarding school. There are 13 across the country. We have one in Connecticut, and I've been their medical psychiatric director for 21 years. 
We have 100 children. They're all teenagers. 50 of them are from America. The other 50 are international. And they are residential kids with learning difficulties, behavior difficulties. And they're there 24-7 for, and usually for a year to maybe four years. And um, I supervise their therapists, social workers, psychologists, nurses, behavioral staff. And I hear what, you're, what we're talking about. I have so much on my plate. It's been a crazy day. So I use the analogy. I said, it reminds me of what I used to see as a child on the Ed Sullivan Show, 8 o'clock on Sunday night. They always had a juggler, a juggling act where a man used to have poles Mm -hmm. and rods and spin plates. And he used to do it with his hands, his (laughs) feet, his mouth, his nose, his his head. And he had so much going all the time, and the audience would laugh and clap. And now that was actually 40, 50 55 years ago. And you know, that graphic visual analogy is what all of us are experiencing today in real life, in our work life. And then we get, we're spinning all these plates and it exhausts us. I know some of the, the symptoms of burnout you say are physical, emotional exhaustion, lack of enthusiasm, but then our performance drops which means we have to almost work harder to get the same performance, longer to get the same performance, and our efficiencies go away. And then, then it just, then plates start falling, right? Well, that's the definition. And when it reaches that phase, it's um, clinically or uh, in real time uh, a significant problem because in the article I do use the, the expression <clears> – <throat> which is very um, prevalent now in, for instance, at Yale New Haven, human error. Mm -hmm. We want to be a high-reliability hospital. We want to be high-reliability physicians and caregivers. And to be high-reliability, we have to be absolutely diligent about error, mistakes, lapses, omissions. And so... Burnout, the last phase of burnout, the first is physical exhaustion, emotional exhaustion, the second level is cynicism, and the third level is, uh, politely put, inefficient performance, which really means error, Mm. human error. And if you make a critical mistake, they call it serious events critical events in the hospital, yeah. that is really, really, really bad. And well, even or like if you're running case, a train, right? If you, I mean, these train right, accidents. The and, yeah, exactly. Human air, airplanes. It's yeah. life and death. Mm, man. It's life and death. Well, then, then psychologically, so it sounds like physically you kind of start deteriorating, then your psyche starts to break down. You start getting worse results, then the real pressures start mounting. Um, what, what's the cause of all of this? Is is it? It's not just the workload. Isn't more of this, Frank, just about how we see what we're doing, how we're how we're thinking about it, that makes us constantly do more? 
Um, that old, old 2,500-year-old philosopher Heraclitus of Ephesus, 2,500 years ago, said, the truth is simple, difficult. Um, he's one of my favorites. Mm, it's a great quote. Uh, it really is. Um, causes are multi-determined. Freud himself said, used the phrase overdetermined. In common language, it means multifactorial. It means there are multiple contributions going into the bottom line result. So when you say kind of what might be contributing to all this, it's a, it, to simplify it in a way, it's combinations coming from individ, the individual, him, herself, and the work environment. Mm. And <clears throat> there is no one factor. Uh, many people in organizations and in organizational psychology kind of have a bit of a bias and say that most of the problems that occur in the workforce, in the workplace, are due to organizational difficulties, workload, poor resources, and uh, improper work environments, non-facilitating work environments, environments that don't make the workers motivated or make it easy for them to do their jobs. That's what that um, contingency say. Mm. The people who are kind of more uh, psychologically uh, predisposed would say it's an individual's capacity to cope, adapt, and deal with stress and uh, problem-solving situations. Hmm. One's appraisal and construal of what one sees as, in the old days we used to use the word uh, problems. Currently, the word is challenges. Yeah. How you see and interpret the challenges and then what you have inside of you to understand them and figure out strategies to manage them in the best possible way. Um, we're speaking with Dr. Frank Ninavaji. He's walking us through the burnout problem that we're facing as a country and that you might be facing. He's talking about the many multifactorial you know, causes of it. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion and find out what we can do. You know, psychologically, environmentally, in our own workplace, just to make it happen. Get healthier. Stick with us. More on burnout when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Are you experiencing burnout and uh, the burnout syndrome, job exhaustion, cynicism, inefficient performance? 
all uh, functions of burnout. And Dr. Frank Ninavaji joins us. He's an assistant clinical professor of child psychiatry at Yale University School of Medicine Child uh, Study Center in New Haven, Connecticut. He also is um, the medical director and has been for many years of the Devereux Glenholm School in Washington, Connecticut. Uh, they have sites all over the country um, for t- children. Um, and we appreciate you, Frank, being with us. This idea of burnout really, it, like, I mean, if uh, this, it's not a new idea. I'm, I'm assuming people have, you know, been feeling some form of job exhaustion. But do you sense it's changing? Is it changing now for any reason um, that in a way that we didn't experience it maybe 100 years ago? I think it is, and my conjecture is that it has to do with the um, introduction of electronics, Mm. um, cell phones, uh, smartphones, and uh, the Internet. I firmly believe that, and uh, it may seem obvious, but uh, kind of... I used to relate it years ago to the invention, uh, the discovery of uh, the light bulb and electricity. You know, that was only about 125, 150 years ago Hmm. that the light bulb was invented and used. And that changed the face of humankind. So, too, I really believe that electronics, uh, media, uh, digital media, has... And that might seem kind of archaic or uh, old-fashioned or simplistic, but if you really think and ponder it, how many times do you see individuals in, in the street, in their car, in a room, looking down with that box? I call it a machine. <laughs> Others have corrected me and said it's a device. Pumping it, pressing it, tapping it. Yeah. Hugging it, rubbing it on their cheek. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really, and you know, it's in a form of addiction. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a distraction. And some would say, well, we can't uh, do without it. And I don't know if I mentioned this to you last time around. Remember I mentioned when we were talking about video games, mm-hmm. I don't know when video games were uh, invented. So I think Super Mario was one of the first. Yeah, great one. I don't know when that was introduced, but between then and now, I've never owned one, nor have I ever played one, (laughs) nor do I ever intend to. Come on, man. that's simply me, Mm -hmm. and I have gotten along. You turned out okay. uh, I'm me. (laughs) I I do my thing. Now, I'm going to add something which might seem preposterous. But actually, it's really the truth. I've never, and I don't intend to, own a smartphone. Really? Amen. Wow. I have a flip phone. Yeah. And the only reason I got a flip phone is about five, eight years ago, I was offered a position a half an hour away at a hospital directing adolescent psychiatry. And so I had to travel a lot, and I had to be on call a lot, Mm. and I needed something. And I was sort of naive about electronics, went to one of the companies, 
And uh, I said, just give me something simple. And they, they showed me what was available, and I didn't want to spend two, three, four hundred dollars at that time. Right. So I think I spent $25, <laughs> and I still have my flip phone. Wow, Frank. I have, I guess you call it a flip yeah, phone. Yeah, it is, yeah. I tell, when I go into... Uh, they call them a relic. I think it's called a relic now. I, I call it a stupid phone, and they said, no, 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 it's just a simple phone. Call <laughs> it a simple phone. That's what they tell me at Verizon. That's good. Not a, it's not a smartphone. It's just a, a, a simple <laughs> phone. I said, that's all I want. That's good. And I've been able to, can you believe it? I have a double appointment at Yale, a professor of medicine and child psychiatry at the university and an attending at Yale New Haven Hospital. Mm. I have a flip phone. Now, I'm just saying that for this reason. I'm still able to get along and do my job and do it well. Right. Well, and you also aren't... With the flip phone also comes every app and every social media function. So you probably don't have the comparative mentality that a lot of others do who are constantly seeing their best friends going on trips and wondering how can they I afford that? I don't belong that? to Facebook. Yeah. Right. And I, because it's – to me, it's not necessary. It's superfluous. If it's superfluous to my – health in existence and to my helping other people live a quality life, then it's, it's optional. It's something optional. So I'm saying that because I can't be the only one like this. Right. And, and I know I'm trying to stress manage in the best possible way I can. And I'm still struggling in my own ways. I have to work on it very, very hard, but I'm aware of it. I'm aware of the stress, the stressors, the liabilities, the quote-unquote challenges, which are really problems, which can develop into high blood pressure, overweight, overeating, heart disease, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And part of this burnout is uh, a lack of motivation and enthusiasm in, you know, years ago, they used to use the expression Elan Vital like a zest for life, an enthusiasm just for existing, for smelling the roses, for looking at the beautiful sun, the beautiful greenery, the beautiful snow, even the ugly snow, <laughs> the ugly greenery. In, at Connecticut, in Connecticut now, everything is drying up and turning yeah. brown and falling. Even where I live, I live in a very rural area outside of New Haven, I see beautiful deer in my backyard running back and forth. I see the little doe, and then I also see coyotes. <laughs> They're all beautiful. Right. They're all part of great nature. The, un- the creator of the universe put it all here for us to perceive, appreciate, take in. And a lot of us are not doing that anymore. Is that is that one of the antidotes then to burned out burnout is um, is to I guess to start being present noticing noticing life. I think and believe it is. I do. I really, really do. But it's very hard. It's easy to say it. Yeah, it is. But it's very, very hard to actually do it. 
what else? Very hard to do it. What else would help us do it? What else, What are some other keys? Uh, we've got about two minutes. What are some other keys that we can use well, to do this? My very, very first book was on Ayurveda, Comprehensive right. Guide to Traditional Indian Medicine, the medicine of India, which is the first medicine in the world, 6,000 years. And when I revised it the third time, uh, at the very, very end, <clears throat> Uh, I wrote a section in the addendum. It's almost the last section. And I thought, let me hit this hard, kind of the meaning of life in a way. You asked me that question once before. And my publisher said, oh, this is really corny. (laughs) I said, you know what? If you don't put this in, I'm going to withdraw the book. They put it in. And and the, the section started out with, Remember the cemetery, but also remember and look at the sun. Mm. In other words, realize you will die and that right now you are alive. Mm. And then go from there. The truth is simple, difficult. That is such a good line. It is simple, difficult, and it's the, the funny thing is I think a lot of us know what we need to do. We just, I guess, is that we just get turned into autopilot? Is that what we're doing? We we just get lived instead of living. That's true. Mm. Well, Dr. Frank Ninavaji, we appreciate you. Keep up the great work there back at uh, Yale New Haven Community Medical Group, and also go check out his blog if you want uh, to just kind of. Take in more of uh, Dr. Ninavaji's work and writings. You can find his blog called Envy This on psychologytoday.com. And go check out his book, Biomental Child Development, Perspectives on Psychology and Parenting and Envy Theory. He's a great, great resource. Dr. Frank Ninavaji. We'll take a break, come back, wrap up the second hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. When I'm calling you. (laughs) Welcome back, friends. Uh, If you are struggling in your relationship, that is probably a song you won't want to play. Because that is going to uh, create problems, as it does for many. Joining us on the phone is Diane Barth. She is a licensed clinical social worker. And along with leading private study groups in New York and workshops for therapists around the country, Diane has published articles in the Clinical Social Work Journal, Psychoanalytic Dialogues. She's also um, a regular contributor on Psychology Today, and she's also written the book entitled Daydreaming, Unlock the Creative Power of Your Mind. Diane Barth, thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you for having me back, man. Good to have you back. Uh, Now, did you like that Slim Whitman song? I liked it. I liked it. I started to chuckle. That's how they get rid of polar bears, apparently. Just really? in case you ever need it in New York. Hey, talk to us about your latest, uh, the latest writing that uh, you put out, How to Rescue a Struggling Relationship. There really are so many things that get in the way um, of our relationships. What are the top things that you hear as a professional uh, that couples bring to you to, to, to fix or to discuss? Well, it's really interesting. So traditionally, it was that, um, you know, it was uh, children, money, and sex, and not necessarily in that order. 
Um, but uh, this this um, research that's recently been done says that really almost all of these things can be fixed if you pay attention to something that's much, in, in, on the one hand, much simpler, and on the other hand, much more difficult, which is um, the issue of self-esteem and self-actualization in a relationship. Hmm. Like self-actualization, that reminds me of um, the Maslow hierarchy of needs. Yeah, exactly. So is that exactly. the same thing? It is, and it's interesting that you have, uh, exactly. I mean, so Maslow's hierarchy of needs starts with sort of the basic needs for food and shelter, um, and then at the very top is the need for self-actualization and self-esteem. And what, and these um, researchers decided to call their model of um, of marital difficulties and relationship difficulties the suffocation model because when you get to the top of that hierarchy, you uh, run out of oxygen, mm. or the oxygen is much thinner. So what they, their theory is that the best way to, um, uh, to resuscitate or to rescue a marriage these days is because we look to our partners for um, uh, both a sense of our own self-esteem and also for a sense that we can move forward and be who we want to be, whether it's as a parent or as a community person or, as a, or in a career, um, the, the rescue has to do with being able to sort of provide more oxygen in these areas. So it's, it's almost like, because Maslow's hierarchy discussed the fact that our basic needs need to be met, the physical needs, food, shelter, clothing. Eventually we move up higher to, you know, a connection, relationship needs, and then right. self-actualization. So is, right. is what we're running into with this theory is the idea that what makes relationships difficult today is we're now asking our partners to be a major part of our self-actualization. Yes, exactly. Which exactly. is the hardest, most ethereal level of all of our development, and yet I'm I'm expecting my partner to bring that to me. It is indeed, and it gets more complicated because um, you're also providing it for your partner. Right. And so it's a really interactive process, and if your partner is not... Um, you know, massaging your self-esteem, you're not going to massage theirs either. Mm. Yeah, so who's becomes a, a real vicious cycle? Whose self-actualization wins? Right, right? it's like the <laughs> battle of exactly. Holy cow! Unbelievable. Yeah. And, I mean, you see this all the time, right? Yeah. So, so you see it with a couple who's just had a baby, and all of a sudden, one of them is paying more attention to the baby and less attention to the partner. And so then instead of being able to say, you know, okay, let me support, and it is that, you know, these days it can be the wife or the husband. It's, it's, um, it's not uh, so gender uh, determined anymore. But instead of saying, um, you know, I have enough self-esteem to be able to support my partner as they provide the care and love and, and um, needs for the baby, um, some of us, you know, and, and I think this happens to everybody at some time. We feel like, oh, this is being taken away from me. Mm. I used to get that attention. Now the baby's getting the attention. Right. And then we become critical of our partner. We become critical of the baby instead of being able to be in a partnership where everybody's sort of supporting everybody in the process. It, um, I, I guess it's, it's funny 
because if if I went to maybe a third world country or another place in the world that doesn't have as much as we have here in yeah. the West, they they may not be looking for self actualization. <laughs> they yes. might just be looking for dinner. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right and a safe exactly. home and a yeah. yeah. Now I actually believe that probably if we were anthropologists or sociologists and we dug a little bit that we would see that it's not really such a clear cut separate right. hierarchy that even when you're looking for dinner you also would like some love and affection mm-hmm. and you also would like some you know giving you some value. And the interesting thing about the theory is it's called the suffocation. Right. Model. And right. that's what I see a lot. I use a metaphor about smoke and fire and how a lot of people just can't breathe because they're not they're they're fighting too much in the smoke instead of dealing with the real issues. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Exactly. So they are suffocating exactly. in their marriage. Yeah. How do we get out of that? How do we start creating more air and space? Well, it's actually very simple in theory, <laughs> yeah. which is that, as soon, I mean, and I see this with couples when I'm working with them all the time, as soon as I can get them to start to talk about the things that they actually still in this moment admire about each other, you can almost watch them both start to breathe. Hmm. There, there's a, there's, you know, you can see the oxygen starting to fill their lungs. Um, because I think that really we, we don't usually marry somebody or become totally involved with somebody who we don't admire on some level right. and who we don't have some, um, <clears throat> excuse me, some sense of, of um, real their value. But when we're feeling like they're not valuing us or we're not getting what we need from them, we tend to think that we're doing the whole thing or, or we could do it by ourselves. And, um, and it's, yeah, it's very important to check that out because most likely you're not. And most likely, on the other hand, thinking that for either partner can then push the other one farther away. Oh, it's so true. And then, then you're playing catch-up. And once right. you're kind of behind, once you're, I mean, it's, it's almost like, I guess, somebody that really was suffocating. You know, if all of a sudden you realize you've been suffocating for 10 years, there's going to be damage. Yes, yes. And then you've got to fix it, but, that. But the thing that I have seen is that couples can go along for a long time without realizing that, that they're doing damage to themselves or yeah. to each other or to the relationship. But once you actually, if you make a conscious decision to start um, trying to bring some air back into the relationship, and the two really simple things are to pay attention to the relationship and to start to notice the things that you do admire and appreciate about your partner, um, it actually, the damage can be undone. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Not always and not, you know, not if it's too extreme, but... But it can be undone. Especially if you want it to be undone. That's right. That's right. You can pretty much make anything happen if you if you want it to. And are willing to work at it. If both of you, I guess, are wanting it and willing. Well, I think it's fascinating. And again, awesome insight from you, Diane. Uh, Diane, where can they reach you? What's your website? Uh, It's um, oh, I never know. Is it www.dianebarth.com or .net? 
Yes, yeah, thank .net. Yeah, .net. I wanted to make <laughs> sure that was it. My fingertips. Yeah. yeah, I know, I know. And again, they can find you on Psychology Today, and too, as Psychology well. Psychology Today, yes. Diane, and thank there's you. There's also a link to the Psychology Today website on my on my web. On your uh, web, page. on your page. Awesome. Thank you again, Diane, and keep up the great work there in New York. We will, uh, we will have you back on the show, I'm sure, very quickly. We'll take a break as well. Stick with us.